Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and um, sorry. Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and today's date is October the nineteenth, twenty twenty, and I have a cat that's crying, <laughs> but um, I have an interesting podcast I wanted to share with you. Um, it's called A Century of Enslavement, The History of the Federal Reserve. It's going to take two tapes. Hi, I'm Buck your personal tour guide to the Federal Reserve. I'm here to introduce you to one of the most complex but effective institutions in the United States. But don't worry, I'll explain it all in plain English. Just beside me is a roadmap of where we're going. Together, we'll walk through the Federal Reserve system, literally. And along the way, I'll show you just what goes on around here and why it's important. By the end of this tour, you too will be able to explain the Federal Reserve in plain English. There is no other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take. There is no other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take. That was Alan Greenspan saying that there's no other agency that can override the decisions that we make. That would be a takeover of monetary policy by the Congress, a a repudiation of the independence of the Federal Reserve, which would be highly destructive to the stability of the financial system, the dollar, and uh, our national economic situation. We don't, the Federal Reserve does not own any gold at all. We have not owned gold since 1934. Don't know where it went. We have a Fort Knox. That's all we have. The real truth of the matter is, as you and I know, that. A uh, federal element in the larger centers has owned the government. I didn't get the rest of it. All our lives, we've been told that economics is boring. It's dull. It's not worth the time it takes to understand it. And all our lives, we've been lied to. hinge on economics, and economics all rests on one key concept. Money. Money. It is the economic water in which we live our lives. We even call it currency. It flows around us, carries us in its wake, drowns those who are not careful. We use it every day, in nearly every transaction we conduct. We spend our lives working for it, worrying about it, saving it, spending it, pinching it. It defines our social status. It compromises our morals. People are willing to fight, die, and kill for it. But what is it? Where does it come from? How is it created? Who controls it? 
It is a remarkable fact that, given its central importance in our lives, not one person in a hundred could answer such basic questions about money as these. So if you were planning a family, you'd want to know where babies come from. Yes. And this is a lot about banking. So let me ask you, where does money come from? Where does the money come from? Where does any the money... The government prints it. It's printed off. Where does money come from? How is new money created? By labor. People work and produce wealth and that... And the money is supposed to match that wealth. Where does money come from? Well, I have a pretty different outlook on money. It actually comes from, like, trees, right? But why is this? How could we be so ignorant about a topic of such importance? Where does money come from is a basic, childlike question. So why is our only response the childlike answer meant as a joke? It grows on trees. Such a profound state of ignorance could not come about naturally. From the time we are children, we are curious about the world and eager to learn about the way it works. And what could lead to a better understanding of the way the world works than a knowledge of money, its creation and destruction? Yet discussion of this topic is fastidiously avoided in our school years and ignored in our daily life. Our monetary ignorance is artificial, a smoke screen that has been erected on purpose and perpetrated with the help of complicated systems and insufferable economic jargon. But it doesn't take an economist to understand the importance of money. Deep down, we all know that the wars, the poverty, the violence we see around us hinges on this question of money. It seems like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle just waiting to be solved. And it is. The puzzle pieces, taken together, create an image of the Federal Reserve, America's central bank, and the heart of the country's banking system. Despite its central importance to the economy, relatively few have heard of it, and fewer still know what it is, despite the bank's attempts at self-description. Our economy runs on a complex system of exchange of goods and services in which money plays a key part. Coin, currencies, savings, and checking accounts, the overall supply of money is managed by the Federal Reserve. Money is the medium through which economic exchanges take place, and money as a standard of value helps us to set prices for goods and services. The job of managing money, monetary policy, is to preserve the purchasing power of the dollar while ensuring that a sufficient amount of money is available to promote economic growth. The Federal Reserve also promotes the safety and soundness of the institutions where we do our banking. It ensures that the mechanisms by which we make payments, whether by cash, check, or electronic means, operate smoothly and efficiently. And in its fiscal role, acts as the banker for the United States government. Now, these duties comprise the major responsibilities of our central bank. But in order to really understand the Federal Reserve, we must first understand its origins and context. We must deconstruct the puzzle. The first piece of that puzzle lies here, in the White House. This is where the Federal Reserve Act, then known as the Currency Bill, was signed into law after passing the House and Senate in late December 1913. The New York Times of Christmas Eve 1913 described the festive scene. The Christmas spirit pervaded the gathering. While the ceremony was a little less impressive than that of the signing of the Tariff Act on October 3rd last in the same room, the spectators were much more enthusiastic and seized every occasion to applaud. 
There in the White House that fateful December evening, President Wilson signed away the last veneer of control over the American money supply to a cartel. A well-organized gang of crooks, so successful, so cunning, so well hidden, that even now, a century later, few know of its existence, let alone the details of its operations. But those details have been openly admitted for decades. Of course, just as we have been taught to find economics boring, we have been taught that this story is boring. This is the way the Federal Reserve itself tells it. The United States was facing severe financial problems. At the turn of the century, most banks were issuing their own currency, called banknotes. The trouble was, currency that was good in one state was sometimes worthless in another. People began to lose confidence in their money, since it was only as sound as the bank that issued it. Fearful that their bank might go out of business, they rushed to exchange their banknotes for gold or silver. By attempting to do so, they created the Panic of 1907. During the Panic, people streamed to the banks and demanded their deposits. The banks could not meet the demand. They simply did not have enough gold and silver coin available. Many banks went under. People lost millions of dollars. Businesses suffered, unemployment rose, and the stability of our economic system was again threatened. Well, this couldn't go on. If the country was going to grow and prosper, some means would have to be found to achieve financial and economic stability. To prevent financial panics, like the one in 1907, President Woodrow Wilson signed the Federal Reserve Act into law in 1913. But this is history as told by the victors, a revisionist vision in which the creation of a central bank to control the nation's money supply is merely a boring historical footnote, about as important as the invention of the zipper or an early 20th century hula hoop craze. The truth is that the story of the secret banking conclave that gave birth to that Federal Reserve Act is as exciting and dramatic as any Hollywood screenplay or detective novel yarn, and all the more remarkable for the fact that it is all true. We pick up the story, appropriately enough, under cover of darkness. It was the night of November 22, 1910, and a group of the richest and most powerful men in America were boarding a private rail car at an unassuming railroad station in Hoboken, New Jersey. The car, waiting with shades drawn to keep onlookers from seeing inside, belonged to Senator Nelson Aldrich, the father-in-law of billionaire heir to the Rockefeller dynasty, John D. Rockefeller Jr., a central figure on the influential Senate Finance Committee where he oversaw the nation's monetary policy, Aldrich was referred to in the press as the general manager of the nation. Joining him that evening was his private secretary, Shelton, and a who's who of the nation's banking and financial elite. A. Pyatt Andrew, the assistant treasury secretary, Frank Vanderlip, president of the National City Bank of New York, Henry P. Davison, a senior partner of J.P. Morgan Company, Benjamin Strong Jr., an associate of J.P. Morgan and president of Bankers Trust Co., and Paul Warburg, heir of the Warburg banking family and son-in-law of Solomon Loeb of the famed New York investment firm Kuhn Loeb & Company. The men had been told to arrive one by one after sunset to attract as little attention as possible. Indeed, secrecy was so important to their mission that the group did not use anything but their first names throughout the journey so as to keep their true identity secret even from their own servants and waitstaff. The movements of any one of them would have been reason enough to attract the attention of New York's voracious press, 
especially in an era where banking and monetary reform was seen as a key issue for the future of the nation. A meeting of all of them, now that would surely have been the story of the century. And it was. Their destination? The secluded Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia, home to the prestigious Jekyll Island Club whose members included the Morgans, Rockefellers, Warburgs, and Rothschilds. Their purpose? Davison told intrepid local reporters who had caught wind of the meeting that they were going duck hunting. But in reality, they were going to draft a reform of the nation's banking industry in complete secrecy. G. Edward Griffin, the author of the best-selling The Creature from Jekyll Island and a longtime Federal Reserve researcher, explains. What happened is that the banks decided that since there was going to be legislation anyway to control their industry, that they wouldn't just sit back and wait and see what happened and cross their fingers that it would be okay. They decided that to do what so many cartels do today, they decided to take the lead and they would be the ones calling for regulations and reform. They like the word reform and um, the American people are suckers for the word reform. You just put that into any corrupt piece of legislation, call it reform and people say, oh, I'm, I'm all for reform and so they vote for it or accept it. So that's what they were doing. They decided we will reform our own industry. In other words, we will uh, create a cartel and we will give the cartel the power of government we'll take our cartel agreement so that we can self-regulate to our advantage and we'll call it the federal reserve act and then we'll take this this uh, cartel agreement to washington and uh, convince those idiots there to pass it into law and that basically was the strategy it was brilliant strategy of course we see it happening all the time and certainly in our own day today we see the same thing happening in other cartelized industry right now we're watching it unfold in the field of healthcare. but at that time it was banking all right and so the the banking cartel wrote their own rules and regulations called it the federal reserve act got it passed into law and it was very much to their liking because they wrote it and then in essence what they had created is a set of rules which made it possible for themselves to regulate their industry, but they went even beyond that. In fact, it's clear to me when I was reading their letters and uh, their conversations uh, at the time and the debates uh, that they never dreamed that Congress would go along and also give them the right to issue the nation's money supply. I mean, not only were they now going to regulate their own industry, which is what they started out as wanting to do, but they got this this uh, incredible gift that they didn't dream would be given to them, although they were negotiating for it. And that was Congress gave them the authority to issue the nation's money. And Congress gave away the, the sovereign right to issue the nation's money to the private banks. And so all of this was in the Federal Reserve Act, and the American people were joyous because they were told, and they were convinced, that this was finally a means of controlling this big creature from Jekyll Island. Amazingly enough, they were successful, not just in conspiring to write the legislation that would eventually become the Federal Reserve Act, but in keeping that conspiracy a secret from the public for decades. It was first reported on in 1916 by Bertie Charles Forbes, the financial writer who would later go on to found Forbes magazine, 
but it was never fully admitted until a quarter century later, when Frank Vanderlip wrote a casual admission of the meeting in the February 9, 1935 edition of the Saturday Evening Post. I was as secretive, indeed as furtive, as any conspirator. I do not feel it is any exaggeration to speak of our secret expedition to Jekyll Island as the occasion of the actual conception of what eventually became the Federal Reserve System. Over the course of their nine days of deliberation at the Jekyll Island Club, they devised a plan so overarching, so ambitious, that even they could scarcely imagine that it would ever be passed by Congress. As Vanderlip put it, Discovery of our plan we knew simply must not happen, or else all our time and effort would be wasted. If it were to be exposed publicly that our particular group had got together and written a banking bill, that bill would have no chance whatever of passage by Congress. So what precisely did this conclave of conspirators devise at their Jekyll Island meeting? A plan for a central banking system to be owned by the banks themselves. A system which would organize the nation's banks into a private cartel that would have sole control over the money supply itself. At the end of their nine-day meeting, the bankers and financiers went back to their respective offices content in what they had accomplished. The details of the plan changed between its 1910 drafting and the eventual passage of the Federal Reserve Act, but the essential ideas were there. But ultimately, this scene on Jekyll Island, too, is just one piece of a larger puzzle. And like any other puzzle piece, it has to be seen in its wider context for the bigger picture to become visible. To understand the other pieces of the puzzle and their importance in the creation of the Federal Reserve, we have to travel backward in time. The story begins in late 17th century Europe. The Nine Years' War is raging across the continent as Louis XIV of France finds himself pitted against much of the rest of the continent over his territorial and dynastic claims. King William III of England, devastated by a stunning naval defeat, commits his court to rebuilding the English Navy. There's only one problem money. The government's coffers have been exhausted by the waging of the war, and William's credit is drying up. A Scottish banker, William Patterson, has a banker's solution. A proposal to form a company to lend a million pounds to the government at 6% plus 5,000 management fee, with the right of note issue. By 1694, the idea has been slightly revised, a 1.2 million pound loan at 8% plus 4,000 for management expenses. But it goes ahead. The magnanimously titled Bank of England is created. The name is a carefully constructed lie, designed to make the bank appear to be a government entity. But it is not. It is a private bank owned by private shareholders for their private profit, with a charter from the king that allows them to print the public's money out of thin air and lend it to the crown. What happens here at the birth of the Bank of England in 1694 is the creation of a template that will be repeated in country after country around the world. A privately controlled central bank lending money to the government at interest. Money that it prints out of nothing. And the jewel in the crown for the international bankers that creates this system is the future economic powerhouse of the world, the United States. In many important respects, the history of the United States is the history of the struggle of the American people against the banksters that wish to control their money. By the 1780s, with colonies still fighting for independence from the crown, the bankers will get their wish. In 1781, the United States is in financial turmoil. The Continental, the paper currency issued by the Continental Congress to pay for the war, has collapsed from overissue and British counterfeiting. Desperate to find a way to finance the end stages of the war, 
Congress turns to Robert Morris, a wealthy shipping merchant who was investigated for war profiteering just two years earlier. Now, as Superintendent of Finance of the United States from 1781 to 1784, he is regarded as the most powerful man in America, next to General Washington. In his capacity as Superintendent of Finance, Morris argues for the creation of a privately owned central bank deliberately modeled on the Bank of England that the colonies were supposedly fighting against. Congress, backed into a corner by war obligations and forced to do business with the bankers just like King William in the 1690s, acquiesces and charters the Bank of North America as the nation's first central bank. And exactly as the Bank of England came into existence loaning the British Crown 1.2 million pounds, the BNA started business by loaning 1.2 million dollars to Congress. By the end of the war, Morris has fallen out of political favor and the Bank of North America's currency has failed to win over a skeptical public. The BNA is downgraded from a national central bank to a private commercial bank chartered by the state of Pennsylvania. But the bankers have not given up yet. Before the ink is even dry on the Constitution, a group led by Alexander Hamilton is already working on the next privately owned central bank for the newly formed United States of America. So brazen is Hamilton in the forwarding of this agenda that he makes no attempt to hide his aims or those of the banking interests he serves. A national debt, if it is not excessive, will be to us a national blessing, he wrote in a letter to James Duane in 1781. It will be a powerful cement of our union. It will also create a necessity for keeping up taxation to a degree which, without being oppressive, will be a spur to industry. Opposition to Hamilton and his debt-based system for establishing the finances of the U.S. is fierce. Led by Jefferson and Madison, the bankers and their system of debt enslavement is called out for the force of destruction that it is, with Thomas Jefferson writing, The spirit of war and indictment, since the modern theory of the perpetuation of debt, has drenched the earth with blood and crushed its inhabitants under burdens ever accumulating. Still, Hamilton proves victorious. The first bank of the United States is chartered in 1791 and follows the pattern of the Bank of England and the Bank of North America almost exactly. A privately owned central bank with the authority to loan money that it creates out of nothing to the government. In fact, it is the very same people behind the new bank as were behind the old Bank of North America. It was Alexander Hamilton, Robert Morris's former aide, who first proposed Morris for the position of financial superintendent and the director of the old Bank of North America, Thomas Willing, is brought in to serve as the first director of the first bank of the United States. Meet the new banking bosses, same as the old banking bosses. In the first five years of the bank's existence, the U.S. government borrows $8.2 million from the bank, and prices rise 72%. By 1795, when Hamilton leaves office, the incoming Treasury Secretary announces that the government needs even more money and sells off the government's meager 20% share in the bank, making it a fully private corporation. Once again, the U.S. economy is plundered, while the private banking cartel laughs all the way to the bank that they created. By the time the bank's charter comes due for renewal in 1811, the tide has changed for the money interests behind the bank. Hamilton is dead, shot to death in a duel with Aaron Burr. The bank supporting Federalist Party is out of power, the public are wary of foreign ownership of the central bank, and what's more, don't see the point of a central bank in time of peace. Accordingly, the charter renewal is voted down in the Senate, and the bank is closed in 1811. Less than a year later, the U.S. is once again at war with England. After
After two years of bitter struggle, the public debt of the U.S. has nearly tripled from $45.2 million to $119.2 million. With trade at a standstill, prices soaring, inflation rising, and debt mounting, President Madison signs the charter for the creation of another central bank, the Second Bank of the United States, in 1816. Just like the two central banks before it, it is majority privately owned and is granted the power to loan money that it creates out of thin air to the government. The 20-year bank charter is due to expire in 1836, but still in his first term, President Andrew Jackson has already vowed to let it die prior to renewal. Believing that Jackson won't risk his chance for re-election in 1832 on the issue, the bankers forward a bill to renew the bank's charter in July of that year, four years ahead of schedule. Remarkably, Jackson vetoes the renewal charter and stakes his re-election on the people's support of his move. In his veto message, Jackson writes in no uncertain terms about his opposition to the bank. Whatever interest or influence, whether public or private, has given birth to this act, it cannot be found either in the wishes or necessities of the executive department, by which present action is deemed premature, and the powers confirmed upon its agent not only unnecessary, but dangerous to the government and country. It is to be regretted that the rich and powerful too often bend the acts of government to their selfish purposes. If we cannot at once, in justice to interests vested under improvident legislation, make our government what it ought to be, we can at least take a stand against all new grants of monopolies and exclusive privileges, against any prostitution of our government to the advancement of the few at the expense of the many, and in favor of compromise and gradual reform in our code of laws and system of political economy. The people side with Jackson, and he's re-elected on the back of his slogan, Jackson and no bank. The president makes good on his pledge. In 1833, he announces that the government will stop using the bank and will pay off its debt. The bankers retaliate in 1834 by staging a financial crisis and attempting to pin the blame on Jackson, but it's no use. On January 8, 1835, President Jackson succeeds in paying off the debt, and for the first and only time in its history, the United States is free from the debt chain of the bankers. In 1836, the second bank of the United States charter expires, and the bank loses its status as America's central bank. It is 77 years before the bankers can regain the jewel in their crown, but it is not for lack of trying. Immediately upon the death of the bank, the banking oligarchs in England react by contracting trade, removing capital from the US, demanding payment in hard currency for all exports, and tightening credit. This results in a financial crisis known as the Panic of 1837, and once again Jackson's campaign to kill the bank is blamed for the crisis. Throughout the late 19th century, the United States is rocked by banking panics brought about by wild banking speculation and sharp contractions in credit. By the dawn of the 20th century, the bulk of the money in the American economy has been centralized in the hands of a small clique of industrial magnates, each with a near monopoly on a sector of the economy. There are the Astors in real estate, the Carnegies and the Schwabs in steel, the Harrimans, Stanfords and Vanderbilts in railroads, the Millens and the Rockefellers in oil. As all of these families start to consolidate their fortunes, they gravitate naturally to the banking sector. And in this capacity, they form a network of financial interests and institutions that centered largely around one man, banking scion and increasingly America's informal central banker in the absence of a central bank, John Pierpont Morgan. John Pierpont Morgan, or Pierpont as he prefers to be called, is born in Hartford, Connecticut in 1837 to Junius Spencer Morgan, a successful banker and financier. 
Morgan rides his father's coattails into the banking business, and by 1871 is partnered in his own firm, the firm that was eventually to become J.P. Morgan & Company. It is Morgan who finances Cornelius Vanderbilt's New York Central Railroad. It is Morgan that finances the launch of nearly every major corporation of the period, from AT&T to General Electric to General Motors to DuPont. It is Morgan who buys out Carnegie and creates the United States Steel Corporation, America's first billion-dollar company. It is Morgan who brokers a deal with President Grover Cleveland to save the nation's gold reserves by selling $62 million worth of gold to the Treasury in return for government bonds. And it is Morgan who, in 1907, sets in motion the crisis that leads to the creation of the Federal Reserve. That year, Morgan begins spreading rumors about the precarious finances of the Knickerbocker Trust Company, a Morgan competitor and one of the largest financial institutions in the United States at the time. The resulting crisis, dubbed the Panic of 1907, shakes the U.S. financial system to its core. Morgan puts himself forward as a hero, boldly offering to help underwrite some of the faltering banks and brokerage houses to keep them from going under. After a bout of hand-wringing over the nation's finances, a congressional committee is assembled to investigate the Money Trust, the bankers and financiers who brought the nation so close to financial ruin and that wield such power over the nation's finances. The public follows the issue closely, and in the end a handful of bankers are identified as key players in the Money Trust's operations, including Paul Warburg, Benjamin Strong Jr., and J.P. Morgan. Andrew Gavin Marshall, editor of the People's Book Project, explains. At the beginning of the 20th century, there was an investigation following the greatest of these financial panics, which was in 1907. And this investigation was on what was called the Money Trust, which found that uh, three banking interests, J.P. Morgan, National City Bank, and uh, the City Bank of New York, I believe it was, um, basically controlled the entire financial system. So three banks. And the public hatred towards these institutions was... Uh, unprecedented. Um, there, there was an overwhelming consensus in the country for establishing a central bank, but there were many different interests uh, in pushing this, and everyone had sort of their own uh, specific purpose behind advocating for a central bank. So to represent uh, the most people, you had uh, farmer interests, populists, progressives, who were advocating a central bank because they couldn't take the recurring panics, but they wanted government control of a central bank. They wanted it to be exclusively under the public control because they despised and feared uh, the New York banks as uh, wielding too much influence. So for them, a central bank would be a way to uh, curb the power of um, these private financial interests. On the other hand, those same financial interests were advocating for a central bank uh, to serve uh, as a, a source of stability for their um, control of the system, also to act as a lender of last resort to them, uh, and so that they would never have to face um, a collapse, but also um, in order to exert more control uh, through a central bank, the private New York banking community uh, wanted a central bank under the exclusive control of them. Uh, there's a shocker. So you had all these various different interests which converged. Uh, of course, the most influential happened to be the New York financial houses, which were uh, more aligned with European financial houses than they were with any other element in American society. Uh, the main individual behind the founding of the Federal Reserve was Paul Warburg, who was 
a partner with uh, Kuhn Loeb and Company, European banking house. His brothers um, were prominent bankers in Germany uh, at that time, and he had, of course, close connections with every um, major financial uh, and really big industrial firm in the United States and most of those existing in Europe. Uh, and he was discussing all these ideas with his uh, fellow compatriots um, in advocating for a central bank. In 1910, um, Warburg, uh, with uh, got the support of a senator named Senator Aldrich, uh, who later, uh, whose family later married into the Rockefeller family. Um, again, I'm sure just a coincidence, but. Um, uh, Aldrich invited Warburg and another uh, a number of other bankers to a uh, private secret meeting on Jekyll Island, uh, just off the coast of Georgia, uh, where they met in 1910 uh, to discuss the construction of a central bank in the United States, but one which, of course, would be owned uh, and serve the interests of the private bankers. Aldrich then, in 1911, presented this as the Aldrich Plan or the Aldrich Bill in the U.S. Congress, uh, and it was actually voted out. The public, suspicious of Senator Aldrich's banking connections, ultimately reject the Jekyll Island Cabal's Aldrich Plan. The Cabal does not give up, however. They simply revise and rename their plan, giving it a new public face, that of Senator Robert Owen and Representative Carter Glass. In the end, the money trust that was behind the panic of 1907 uses the public's own outrage against them to complete their consolidation of control over the banking system. The newly retitled Federal Reserve Act is signed into law on December 23, 1913, and the Fed begins operations the next year. How does the Federal Reserve System work? What does it do? Who owns and controls it? These are the basic questions that would get to the heart of the fundamental question, what is money? And that is why the answer to these questions have been shrouded in impenetrable economic jargon. Even the Federal Reserve's own educational propaganda, which has an unusual tendency towards cutesy animation and talking down to its audience, has a difficult time summarizing the Fed's mission and responsibilities. According to the Fed, to achieve these goals, the Fed, then and now, combines centralized national authority through the Board of Governors, remember that on the map, with a healthy dose of regional independence through the reserve banks. A third entity, the Federal Open Market Committee, brings together the expertise of the first two in setting the nation's monetary policy. Precisely what imaginary gaggle of schoolchildren is this economic gibberish aimed at? The simple truth, hidden behind the sleight of hand of economic jargon and magisterial titles, is that a banking cartel has monopolized the most important item in our entire economy, money itself. We are taught to think of money as the pieces of paper printed in government printing presses or coins minted by government mints. While this is partially true, in this day and age, the actual notes and coins circulating in the economy represent only a tiny fraction of the money in existence. 
Over 90% of the money supply is in fact created by private banks as loans that are payable back to the banks at interest. Although this simple fact is obscured by the wizards of Wall Street and gods of money who want to make the money creation process into some special art of alchemy carefully overseen by the government, the truth is not hidden from the public. In December 1977, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York published another of its dumbed-down cartoon-ridden information pamphlets for the general public, attempting to explain the functions of the Federal Reserve System. There in black and white, they carefully explain the money creation process. Commercial banks create checkbook money whenever they grant a loan, simply by adding new deposit dollars to accounts on their books in exchange for a borrower's IOU. Banks create money by monetizing the private debts of businesses and individuals. That is, they create amounts of money against the value of those IOUs. There it is, in plain English. The vast majority of money in the economy, the checkbook money in our accounts at the bank, and that we use in our electronic transfers and digital payments, is created not by a government printing press, but by the bank itself. Yeah. It is created out of thin air as debt, owed back to the bank that created it at interest. This means that bank loans are not money taken from other bank depositors, but new money simply conjured into existence and placed into your account. And the bank is able to create much more money than it has cash to back up those deposits. The Fed claims to be the entity overseeing and backing up the banking industry. It was established, according to its own propaganda, to stabilize the system and prevent bank runs like the Panic of 1907 from happening again. Throughout much of the 1800s, almost any organization that wanted could print its own money. As a result, many states, banks, and even one New York druggist did just that. In fact, at one time, there were over 30,000 different varieties of currency in circulation. Imagine the confusion. Not only were there multitudes of currencies, some were redeemable in gold and silver, others were backed by bonds issued by regional governments. It was not unusual for people to lose faith both in the value of their currency and in the entire financial system. With many people trying to withdraw their deposits at once, sometimes the banks didn't have enough money on hand to pay their depositors. Then, when the funds ran out, the banks suspended payment temporarily and some even closed. People lost their entire savings and sometimes regional economies suffered. Obviously, something had to be done. And in 1913, something was. And that year, President Woodrow Wilson signed into effect the Federal Reserve Act. This act created the Federal Reserve System to provide a safer and more stable monetary and banking system. If that was indeed its aim, it signally failed to do so in running up one of the greatest bubbles in American history to that point in the 1920s, just a decade after its creation. The popping of that bubble, of course, led directly into the Great Depression, and one of the greatest periods of mass poverty in American history. Economists have long argued that the Fed itself was the cause of the depression by its complete mismanagement of the money supply. As former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke admitted in a speech commemorating Fed critic Milton Friedman's 90th birthday, regarding the Great Depression, you're right, we did it. We're very sorry. But thanks to you, we won't do it again. Price stability is another cited tenet of the Federal Reserve's mandate. But here, too, the Fed has completely failed to live up to its own standards. Aside from the banking system, the Federal Reserve has another responsibility that's probably even more important. 
It's in charge of something called monetary policy. Basically, it means trying to keep prices stable to avoid inflation. Say you buy a CD today for $14, but what if next year the price of the CD jumped to $20 or $50? Not because of a change in supply or demand, but because all prices were going up. That's inflation. There are a lot of different causes of inflation, but one of the most important is too much money. The Fed can adjust the money supply by injecting money into the system electronically or by withdrawing money from the economy. Think of it. The Federal Reserve has the ability to create money and make it disappear. What's most important is what happens as a result. Anytime the supply of money is altered, the effects are felt throughout the economy. The Fed's methods have changed over time to take advantage of the latest computers and electronics, but its mission remains the same, to aim for stable prices, full employment, and a growing economy. Okay, so I need to make another tape, so hold on while I do that, and we'll do part two.